Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Authentic Woman. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and we've got a fun show today. My guest is author Kate Sukel, and she does a lot of science and travel writing. She's uh, She's been a, a writer for a number of years, and we're going to be talking about a book that she wrote called This Is Your Brain on Sex, The Science Behind the Search for Love. And it is, uh, it's extremely informative about how our brain can chemistry uh, drives our behavior and, and the reasons we do the things we do. Uh, but, but the book is absolutely hysterical as well. So it's, it's not a, a dry science book. It's got some, some real-world examples and some, uh, some excellent one-liners. So anyone out there listening, I would highly recommend it. And without further ado, I would like to welcome my guest, Kate Zuckel. Kate, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. This is going to be fun. I know, definitely, definitely. And this book, uh, it really, um, I, I think one of your chapters was entitled Stupid Is As Stupid Does. And I think all of us uh, have have made poor choices along the way due to uh, being in love or being in lust. Uh, what made you decide that, uh, that you wanted to, to research this in depth and write a book on this topic? Uh, well, so of course, I, I think what's funny is so often when we're in the throes of love, we don't think that we're being stupid, right? But mm-hmm. if we see our best friend fall in love and all of a sudden all they're doing is talking about, you know, say they fell in love with Brian, Brian this, Brian that, well, that color blue is the color of Brian's eyes. Um, we know exactly how stupid they sound. Um, and then if somebody recorded us and played us back to ourselves, we'd be like, oh, yeah. Um, but the the basis of the book was I was getting divorced. And, um, you know, I, I had sort of felt like I had been hit over the head with a two-by-four. And, I, you know, I, I didn't want to get divorced again. What had I done wrong? On paper, my first husband was perfect. So why didn't it work? And, um, you know, it's funny, and, and this didn't make the book, but, um, you know, when you're thinking about getting divorced or you're having marital problems, everybody has a book. And they're going to tell you that you absolutely have to read this book. Right. Um, nine times out of ten, this book is either Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, or The Five Love Languages. I'm going to tell you that right now. You could just read them and get them out of the way just so you can, you know, come with a sarcastic retort when somebody recommends them. But I actually picked up Men Are From Mars, Women Are from Venus. Um, I was kind of feeling that desperate and um, it, it had been out a while. So there was like this new forward and they had written um, the, the author, John Gray had written something in the beginning about it. It's like, well, if you don't agree with this book um, and you're a woman or you don't feel like you relate, this may be because you have too much testosterone in your brain. Hmm. And I read that and I thought, huh? Okay. Well, um, you know, I don't have a mustache. Nothing's descending. Um, I, I don't seem to have hairier palms than usual. So what does that even mean? Too much testosterone in the brain. Um, and, and given that my background is in neuroscience, I thought maybe this is an interesting way to look at this. So instead of, you know, some love languages, and, I, I, you know, I don't mean to be too sarcastic about these books because I know they do help a lot of people and give them different ways to think about behavior. Um, but they didn't work for me, and I thought maybe neuroscience might give me a new and sort of deeper lens to really get at, you know, what is this love thing and why did it affect us so? 
Sure, sure. And that really is, uh, it's it's a mystery to so many people why we make the decisions we do. And, and, and I can't tell you how many, you know, dinners I've had with friends where they've looked at me and said, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? <laughs> and, and I think that's true for men and women. We all make a lot of decisions based on things that we really, uh, over which we have no control whatsoever. So you say that, that some of some of the ways that we behave and the way that we bond with others is uh, is formed in our genetics before we're even born. Tell me a little bit about that. So this is really fascinating because, you know, this is the field of epigenetics. This is really actually coming to bear a lot of fruit in our understanding of disease um, and our dis- uh, understanding of certain physical traits right now, but also just, you know, why maybe some of us are more um, needy, we're more affectionate, we're more physically affectionate. Some of us are more standoffish. Um, And what people have found is that genes that are related to sort of monogamy and love behaviors, you know, we we talk about genes like there's the monogamy gene or the, you know, height gene or whatever. And of course, it doesn't work like that. A gene codes for a protein. And that protein is expressed everywhere in the body, not just in our brain. Um, but what happens is epigenetics, you can sort of think about it in terms of like the software. If the genet- our genes are the hardware, epigenetics is a software program telling these genes when to make these proteins, where to make these proteins, and how many. Um, and that really alters development. That, that makes things different between you and I and, of course, me and my sister and um, anybody else. And that's all um, before before we're even before we're even born. Yeah, so this is you know they're basically popping in that operating system, um, and it, it's a lot of it is based on um, what has happened in our grandparents and our our parents' lives, um, and that's sort of you know telling these genes when they might be needed more. Um, certainly, you know, a lot of the epigenetic work has been fascinating because it's been done on, um, you know, babies who have been born to parents or grandparents who, who maybe lived in uh, lean times. So um, there was a big study that looked at obesity in children of the Dutch. Um, and it, during World War II, the Netherlands was, you know, people who lived there, all of the food, all the produce went to the German army, and so they were starving. Mm. And what they found is a couple generations later, um, you know, Dutch babies tended to be more obese and they didn't understand why because they were exercising just as much and they were, um, you know, eating well. But it turns out that there was something going on in their bodies and brains saying, okay, wait a minute, you know, right around this time, it, it could be starvation times. So we're going to turn on this program that makes you eat a lot more than you need to so that, you know, we can make sure that that you have enough, you know, fat and, and nutrients in your body to survive a starvation period, which is really fascinating. So the same kind of thing actually happens with love, and and what scientists are finding is that depending, <laughs> and you know, when I start this story, I always feel like I have to repeat what the scientist told me at the time. Her name is Frances Champagne, which is a great name uh, for scientists, actually. Yes. Um, yeah, two great names in, in the book. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blabbing a little bit, but I have to say it. Dick Swab and Francis Champagne. Um, they almost sound like they could be in their own movie. Um, but Dr. Champagne, you know, she made this comment. She's like, I don't like the good mother, bad mother um, thing. But what she finds is when she looks at um, rats and she studies rats, um, you know, you have two kinds of mothers. One is sort of like the high-licking and grooming mom. She is really, you know, sort of there for her pups. 
She takes very good care of them. She's always grooming them. She's always bringing them back to the nest. She's making sure that they're okay. Um, and then you have low-looking grooming moms. They're they're kind of more of your less uh, attentive, uh, you know, more likely to eat the food in the bowl before giving it to the babies kind of mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you see is whether or not your mom is a high-looking mom or a low-looking mom, that's going to turn on or off certain programs in these babies. And you find, see what you see with the low-looking moms is that their offspring uh, tend to be more sexually promiscuous. Uh, they tend to be, are a lot more likely to be low-looking moms themselves. Um, and they have very different sort of setups of receptors in their brains when it comes to mating and attachment rituals. And that's really fascinating. Uh, so when you do sit there and say, oh, gosh, I think the real reason why I can't have, you know, a serious relationship is because my mother was so cold to me growing up, um, while it's not that simple, there might actually be a little bit there. Um, but, of course, again, going back to that good mother or bad mother, you can think of environments where it's actually probably a good thing for that mom to be a low-licking mom. If it is a environment of scarcity, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she needs to sort of take care of herself and, and you know, the babies may not survive. Don't get too attached. Right. Um, if, if it is, you know, in a, a situation where, um, you know, you need to be more stressed, you need to be more vigilant to survive because there's more predators, um, you know, you want a low-looking and grooming mom. So it's really fascinating how these little things, these behaviors that, that we really sort of take for granted really can shape. Um, the ways that our brains process um, not just relationship information, but just environmental information. Well, definitely. And and you say in the book that uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, chemicals that are released during our you know bonding process with our mothers and fathers mm-hmm. when we're younger, and our bodies get used to uh, a certain release at a certain time, and so. Uh, so what is the chemical uh, in a child's brain that would be affected by uh, a difference in mothering styles? So there are actually a variety of different chemicals in the brain. A lot of times what people talk about is oxytocin. And some people call it the, the cuddle chemi- chemical. Um, other people call it the moral molecule um, I'm always wary of any chemical that has a nickname because, again, <laughs> like I said with genes, um, you know, it, it, none of these things do one thing, right? They're right. expressed throughout the body. And so when we think about something like oxytocin, um, it does get released in, in the brain and the body. It's something that's released when a mother is nursing. Um, it's something that's actually given to moms, the, a synthetic form, um, to help hasten labor so that they can help induce labor and have babies faster. Um, so it, it's something that, that works throughout the body. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, it really seems to help cement um, bonds between people, feelings of attachment, feelings of love. Um, and it's, it's pretty easy to release it. You can, you know, get a hit of it from a, from a massage, from, you know, a hug. Right now my dog is curled up against my leg, and I'm probably getting a nice little uh, dose of oxytocin from that. Um, and it, it, you know, it's why touch and, and why I think just non-sexual touch is, is really important to relationships because it does help keep this chemical coming. Um, and certainly, you know, you, you see, again, if you go back to those high licking and grooming moms, if we were to translate it, 
to, to adults, what you see is that kids that were cuddled and held a lot, and of course there's a lot of work in attachment parenting now on the psychological side, they tend to be more attached parents and, and cuddle and love a lot. And, and, you know, that can be a very positive thing. Of course, you can take it too far but uh, with anything, so everything in moderation. But uh, Right, right. Yeah. And you say that the brain has a completely separate system for processing romantic love and other kinds of love. So what is the what is the the main difference there? So uh, it, you know, I really love the way this is this is actually from Helen Fisher's work and she's this this wonderful evolutionary biologist uh at Rutgers University and she's sort of spent her career looking at love. And so there are three systems, there are distinct systems in the brain. But you might, unless you were sort of a brain anatomist or a neuroscientist, you might think that they're very similar. They're in very similar parts of the brain. So, of course, the big one, everyone thinks about sex first because, you know, we're dirty, dirty people. Um, (laughs) And that's kind of the hypothalamus. And that is a very evolutionary old structure. You're going to find it in, you know, rats and pigs and primates and humans. Um, and it's it's really the seat of the sex drive. If there's damage to the hypothalamus, you're probably not getting busy. Um, then nearby in this area of the brain called the basal ganglia, um, it's sort of the motivation center of the brain. You're going to find these little distinct structures. So one of them is called um, the ventral tegmental area. And this area has been linked to romantic love. And so this is sort of all of those, you know, Nicholas Sparks type feelings and, you know, thinking that someone is the only one for you, my beloved forever and ever and ever. Um, and, and so that's where you get sort of those very romantic feelings. But also very nearby, also in that area called the basal ganglia, you find an, uh, a little section called the ventral pallidum. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see attachment. Um, and so attachment behaviors, it may be the way that you feel about your best friend. It may be the way you feel about, you know, um, that guy that you went to high school with, um, you know, but these three systems, they're distinct, but they're connected and they work together and actually they work not so well together. And I, I think it's really fascinating because it explains the such diverse soap opera of love-related situations that we find ourselves in. All the time. I mean, I I hate to bring Brangelina into this, but, you know, it's so funny. People get so attached to it and they're online and they're like, how could she do this to him or how could he do this to her? But you think of every, you know, soap opera, what All My Children's been on for 30 years now or what have you. Mm -hmm. And, of course, everybody's been married to everybody at this point. These three systems working well together but not working well together, that explains why you could be very happily married to your spouse and yet totally checking out the hot ass of that guy at work. It explains why somebody who has been your friend for so long, um, totally in the friend zone, you wake up one day after 10, 15 years and think, huh, why didn't I ever hit that? It's why after being married to someone that you couldn't get enough of for so long, all, you know, sort of fades into that more friendly attachment of, of older, you know, romantic love. It explains the way we feel about our friends, the way we feel about our kids, um, and really, again, just all the messy, diverse, and, and sort of crazy-making situations we can find ourselves in um, when we say, well, I'm in love with you both. Well, these three systems kind of explain why that is. Definitely. Def- it's so that That is so fascinating that we've got these uh, 
competing systems going on in our brain, no wonder we're confused. <laughs> well, and, you know, I think it goes back, and it's this idea that, you know, love is a drive. And I think this is also really important because we've, we've sort of accepted that sex is a drive. Um, normally, of course, to justify bad behavior on, on the part of people who, who can't or either can't or won't be monogamous. Right. Um, and, of course, the monogamy discussion is a whole other can of worms, which hopefully you'll ask me about in a little bit. Definitely. Um, but, you know, we are meant, we are a social animal. We are meant to live in, in families and groups, and we get a lot of sort of healthy, um, you know, brain-related chemical release when we are in those groups. And so what these different areas are doing is they're they're helping keeping us social. They're helping us figure out the rules. They're helping us make sure that we have somebody with us to help us with the commitment of raising a child, um, but also getting sex to help propagate the species. Um, you know, there are so many needs required uh, to, you know, to be a human, and, and it really does involve having, I, I don't want to say it takes a village, but it, it, it kind of does. And so this helps to make sure that that village is nearby. Sure, sure. And you talk about the role of, of dopamine, uh, yeah. in, in, so, so talk about that and the, the reward centers and, and, and what, what dopamine does to the brain and why we need it. So dopamine is another chemical that gets a lot of nicknames. So many. So in fact, the science writer Von Bell called it the Kim Kardashian of neurotransmitters, which I think is <laughs> hilarious. Um, you know, cause some people call it the pleasure chemical. Some people call it a reward chemical. Uh, I think if you really were to have to give it a nickname, I think you'd call it a learning chemical. But it is something that releases a bunch of pleasurable feelings. Um, and it's something that, you know, when you go after rewards, whether it be sex or food or, you know, all the best things in life, you're going to get a hit of this dopamine. And it's basically a signal in your brain saying, hey, this is good. You want this. You need to remember how you got this so you can get it again. And, you know, so sex releases all that dopamine and it makes some, you know, pathways in the brain and, and helps sort of perpetuate, you know, uh, the start of, of a bond with you and another person. Um, so, you know, if you go back a ways and if you ever heard of Dr. Laura and if you haven't, you don't have to hear about her now. Let's pretend I didn't say her name. But um, <laughs> there's this big book she had about 20 years ago when I was sort of, you know, getting into the dating scene called The Rules. And it was very um, popular because she said that w the whole reason why women shouldn't see certain men so often or have sex with them before marriage is because they would automatically get attached and, um, you know, they'd fall in love with someone they, they weren't meant to be with. They didn't know was a good catch. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some of us with sex, it, it does, you know, get the start of those kind of bonds going. But that doesn't mean you're going to fall in love. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're tied to them forever and they're going to break your heart. But it may be that your brain is telling you, hey, that sex thing was pretty good. Maybe we should try that again. Um so, you know, I, I think that there definitely are some people who get a super big hit of certain chemicals after sex and start to get feeling really attached. Um, but for the most of us, you know, it, it's more of a, hey, you know, sex, that's not so bad. We right. can do that more often. Well, okay. I, yeah, I guess that explains why some people get addicted to drugs and some people don't and some people become alcoholics and some people don't. <laughs> And, you know, it's the same systems. And I think that's even the most fascinating part. In fact, when the first scientists started looking at, you know, a, a neuroimage of the brain and love, 
he said, oh, my God, this looks like somebody who just had a hit of cocaine. Because what you see are these same sort of areas in those motivation centers of the brain lit up, and they light up. And a lot of that is that dopamine release. Um, so in, in a similar way, I think that, yes, uh, some people, not that I recommend this, can have a hit of cocaine and just get the high and be cool. Some of us, you know, it does permanently alter brain chemistry. And that we could probably tie back to that epigenetics again, um, where there's something in the blueprint in that software um, that was handed down to you by your ancestors that, that really sort of alters the way um, that your body and your brain deals with, with these kind of external signals. Sure. Now, so in the epigenetics realm, you said that even the things that a woman eats when she's pregnant can have an impact on a developing <laughs> child. Yes. You know, it's funny because you get those lists like, you know, don't eat these soft cheeses, stay away from deli meats, no sushi. Um, but yeah, actually, you know, and that comes back to, to that Dutch study, right? So mm -hmm. if somebody really starves themselves, they may find that they are turning on programs in the baby's body that is worried about periods of starvation. So, um, you know, that deprivation, those signals tell that baby, okay, eat, eat more, make sure to stay fat. So in case that, that period of, you know, starving happens again, you're going to be okay. Um, so many of these these programs that get set up, they're, they really are survival oriented, right? They're there to help us live, you know, longer, at least long enough to propagate the species mm -hmm. and propagate our genes. Um, and they're they're very survival oriented. Um, so it's fascinating to think that, and and I write about this in the book. My mom apparently the only thing that she could keep down was fast food cheeseburgers, mm -hmm. like. She and my dad had just moved to a new town. Um, you know, they were like on expense reports because they were waiting for uh, eating off of an expense report because they were waiting for a house to be built. So they go to some fancy restaurant for my dad to eat at night. And then after she couldn't eat at all. And then they drive through this fast food drive through on the way home and she gobbled down these cheeseburgers. So I'm pretty <laughs> sure that all of my love related foibles have something to do. There's a metaphor there. I'm just, you know, starting to grasp it. Um, but, uh, that's the thing, you know, there's so much about, um, the way that we view relationships and, you know, it's, it's not even that societally transmitted information about what it means, especially for women, uh, to be a good girl and when you should be having sex and when you shouldn't be having sex and what's a valuable relationship and what's not. And, and let's not even, I don't even know if I can step into the, you know, how heteronormative all this stuff is on top of that. But even with all of those, you know, guideposts and shame and all that stuff, you know, you have these these biological blueprints as well, stuff that your parents didn't even realize that they were doing um, are also sort of putting up these these different boundaries and these different ways that we interact with other people. And, it, you know, how could we not be crazy you know, I mean, exactly. there's so, so we may have mixed societal and biological messages, you know, um, we may have, you know, this desire to have lots of sex, even though we're told all the time that we're supposed to be monogamous. Um, we may not have a desire to have all that much sex at all. And then we read each month our, our issue of Cosmo and think, hey, what's wrong with me? Why don't I want to put a donut around his penis and eat it off? You know, I mean, it's it's. It's crazy how much environmental stuff is out there. And then there are all these biological messages as well. 
it, it's no wonder we don't know what to do half the time. Definitely. And you, and you say that, you know, throughout the course of life, illnesses can affect your, uh, your, your brain chemistry, your, your neurofunction, especially, uh, mm-hmm. people who have depression, their neurotransmitters aren't firing. So talk a little bit about how health uh, in a person's life can can alter this love slash sex brain chemistry. Sure. Um, so you know we talked about dopamine, and I said if it was going to have one nickname, even after I said no nicknames, lo- the learning chemical. Mm-hmm. You know this is part. The, the love stuff is part of this really important sort of decision making circuit. And when we talk about something like depression. Serotonin, um, which most people understand as a neurotransmitter that is related to depression, most of the antidepressant medications um, work to sort of increase serotonin in the brain, have it stick around a little bit longer to improve mood. Um, You know, all of these same areas are also sort of involved with these love systems and the libido systems. A very common side effect of, you know, depression is anhedonia or a lack of joy. Um, and also a lot of it is a lack of sex drive. And it's because, you know, the brain, it doesn't do redundancies. A lot of the areas have multiple purposes. And in fact, we probably do ourselves a disservice when we say that this area of the brain is, is for love and this one is for, you know, depression and whatever else. You know, the brain, it's an expensive machine to run. And so a lot of the same areas are involved with very different things. And so when you do have a depressed mood, and that is because there is a lack of certain chemicals in the brain or you have an imbalance, that is going to affect the areas around it. It's no wonder you feel a lack of joy or a lack of desire um, until you sort of get that balance back. Um, you know, you, you, you shouldn't feel bad about it. Um, it's, it's, it's a very common side effect. Um, you know, similarly, what you see in... Other neuropsychiatric disorders, um, you know, in the manias of bipolar disorder, um, in some of the um, Parkinson's and, and some of the neurodegenerative disorders, you'll also see hypersexuality. People who, um, you know, are, are having sex all the time, not with their regular partners, are almost like compelled um, to, to have more sex. And again, it's, it's, it's due to that sort of imbalance. Um, so I think overall health is important, and we're we're starting now to learn. Oh, like I mean, it's so much more complicated than we ever thought. Um, I think a lot of the work, and and this isn't covered in my book because it's so new on the microbiome, um, and just how the all of these sort of colonies of bacteria in our guts are are talking directly with our brains. Um, this fascinates me, right? Because it, the your gut you know, has um, more neurons than any other organ in your body than than your brain. And they're talking to each other. Right. So if you have an imbalance in your gut flora, that can affect mood. That can affect sex. Uh, that can affect. And, and we're only starting to really understand just how complex it all is. That there, the, the fact that there's a biological component to just about everything is, I mean, it, it really is fascinating. And, 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 you know, we really have to think about where we're living, what we're exposing ourselves to, what we're eating. And um, it's, it's, it's almost uh, too much to think about all of the things that we have to factor into our, our general health and well-being. And, you know, the other thing, you know, I'd bring up with that is stress because stress is something that can really sort of mess up, you know, the pop- population of, of gut flora. 
but it's also something that really dampens the libido. It tends to make you more irritable, to take you away from people. And again, if we go to back to that idea that being connected to others, being social and, and being loved is, is a drive. Um, you know, we're, we're stressing ourselves out of some pretty good stuff without even realizing it. Sure, sure. And, and, and the, the hormones that we're receiving in the brain, uh, it, it, switching gears a little bit, um, you, you've said that testosterone, high levels of testosterone are linked to aggressive behaviors and that after a man, uh, begins to fall in love with someone, suddenly, uh, aggressive behaviors escalate. So that's, you would think that would be counterintuitive because of the oxytocin and the release and the dopamine and the joy. So talk a little bit about our, our sex hormones and how they affect our behavior. So uh, we talk about estrogen and testosterone a lot in terms of, of course, puberty, right? This is the stuff that makes our baby making parts work. Um, but you know, the thing is, we also have lots of receptors all over the brain for estrogen and testosterone. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are not only affecting, you know, the hypothalamus, that area for sex, but also the areas around it. And yes, testosterone can increase aggression um, early on, but, um, you know, it really is sort of towards other males. It's almost like a biological drive to fend off rivals. And what you see then though after a woman has a baby, testosterone actually drops quite a bit. Um, And a lot of people think that that's a signal to the brain, you know, to tell uh, the guy, okay, wait a minute, you shouldn't be out, you know, bouncing around or, uh, you know, uh, fertilizing any other flowers. You need to be here right now and and help raise your offspring. Right. Um, But it's, it's really interesting to see things like, when women are ovulating, and a lot of these are very subtle signals, um, but studies have shown that um, when you're ovulating, women are more likely to dress more provocatively. They're more likely to ask a guy to dance at a club. Strippers make more in tips when they're on, you know, and these, these are blind <laughs> studies. That is amazing. Um, that is amazing. Yeah, so there's just something, you know, we, we talk a lot about primates and, you know, we know that baboons, for example, the females, um, when they're fertile, you know, their butts turn bright red and it's a big signal to the male, come on, get busy, this is, you know, prime baby-making time. Um, and certainly our butts don't turn red anymore, but it seems that we are giving off some kind of signals that say, hey, um, I'm fertile, I'm ready, and I'm a good match for you. Right. And um, so it's it's interesting um, to see how things that we, we don't even notice really can impact our behavior. That really is. And one of the things in your book that cracked me up is, uh, is the study that they were doing with primates. One of the primates, as a mating ritual, actually pretended to be a damsel in distress. Yes. <laughs> Tell the listeners that story because that's hysterical. So um, I, I got to go to this primate center, and uh, this is Kim Wallen's work. And basically I was looking at this, this colony of, of monkeys, and a new male had been introduced. And, um, you know, primates, they have very complex social structures, um, and if you read Jane Goodall or, or, or any of these uh, these other sort of researchers, you can learn more about that. But, you know, this male being introduced is a big deal. And um, so there were plenty of females in this group, and he was just trying to get the lay of the land. But it was funny, almost as soon as he got 
into this enclosure, females started to solicit him. You know, they were sort of getting up right in front of him, showing him their lady parts, trying to get him to, you know, uh, get busy. But he was, you know, kind of ignoring them, playing it cool. And there was a good reason why. If he chooses the wrong female, not only could he get a good beat down, um, but it, it could get him ostracized from this this group. Um, so he really needs to figure out, okay, wait a minute, who is it okay for me to meet with and who isn't it? But the things that some of these females would do to try to get his attention, you know, they would kind of throw things. They would try to, you know, sort of do the equivalent of the sexy dance. And some of them would kind of play damsel in distress and try to get his attention to come help him. Um, they, you know, they'd kind of fight with the others. You saw all of these sort of real housewives or maybe Jersey Shore kind of behaviors in these, these animals. It was really hard not to anthropomorphize them as you watch them. But I think the most fascinating thing is that while I was there watching them, you know, here you have this male. He's a monkey. And he literally has half a dozen females, you know, basically going up to him and saying, okay, baby, I'm ready. Give it to me. Give it to me right now. Yeah. And even this monkey has the smarts and has the planning and forethought to say, no, nah, I'm going to wait it out. I, I need to see what, how things are going here first before before I choose a mate. So for all those guys who think that there's some kind of biological imperative, they can't stop cheating around because, you know, of those billion sperm just, you know, aching to break free. Nope. <laughs> Even a monkey can say no when he wants to. That is um, funny. That is funny. So it, it was it was really fun to kind of watch them and, and see the, these very different ways that, uh, you know, these researchers are, are trying to understand love. That is. So what role do, do pheromones play? You, you've, you've said that that uh, that plays a, a large role in, in what we what we are unconsciously uh, or subconsciously um, emitting. So, uh, so, so what how does that fit factor into the equation? So pheromones is kind of a loaded word. Um, we know that animals have pheromones. In fact, there are, um, you know, you can actually buy spray cans full of something called bormate, which is pig pheromones that uh, gets them ready for mating. Um, if you if you work in a farm and, and work in animal husbandry, you can help get animals ready that way. Um, but to date, it's still highly debated whether humans give off pheromones. One, we don't have the same kind of olfactory bulb or, or uh, you know, smell processing systems as other animals. Um, and some of has led some to argue that we, we don't have pheromones per se. Um, it may just be that our chemical messages are a little bit more complicated than the single molecules that some of these other animals get off. Um, but this is it's more of a debate, I think, for for a scientific, you know, conference. It, it, but um, what we do have plenty of is what are called chemosensory signals. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that our bodies, they don't keep many secrets and our brains are quite adept at picking up information about other people and their health state. And we don't even realize it. Um, and a lot of that is comes from underarm sweat. So the key to his heart or your heart may not be in your cooking or in your, you know, nice tight butt or whatever else it may be, your armpit sweat. And what, what is a lot of studies have been done, they're called the dirty t-shirt tests. Mm -hmm. You recruit students to wear shirts. 
You have them abstain from using any kind of uh, soap or deodorant or, I'm sorry, scented soap or deodorant. They just have to sort of sweat it out in these shirts and then they get put in a, in a bag. Um, and then women would come smell these shirts and they would rate the attractiveness of the person that would wear them. And what they found is you sniff these tests, uh, these shirts, and some of them do smell really, really attractive. Um, and when they sort of analyzed the genetic makeup, what they found is you tend to be more attracted to the smell, or women do, of men um, who are most genetically compatible with you, who have enough diversity for strong, healthy offspring. So that fascinates me because um, I will tell you I have this one boyfriend in college. I, I can, I mean, he would go running, and I swear I would have taken his dripping wet T-shirt and just, you know, buried my face in it because his sweat smelled so good to me. And apparently, I guess I should have been having offspring with him because they would have been super children. Um, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of us, we've, we've been in that relationship with someone where they just they smell good and we don't know why. Right. Um, and it turns out, you know, our brains subconsciously are processing this information and, and they're a good bet for, uh, for, for healthy, strong offspring. And so I think that's pretty interesting. And, of course, now, or when I was dating, I'm remarried now, but uh, when I was dating, I, I did a lot of armpit sniffing. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, that's amazing because, I mean, we talk about the ability of, of dogs to, you know, to go and sniff out disease and find cancers mm -hmm. and whatnot. So uh, I guess it turns out we have uh, somewhat similar abilities. Well, it, it, in some of those studies, and, you know, it, it, it's, when you're talking about picking, you know, a strong partner for offspring, you know, those smells give off information maybe about particular genes or, or disease states or, you know, I mean, they just, they don't smell right to you. And so, yeah, I think dogs, they, they can smell when somebody doesn't like them. And, you know, we can, I think, even know, you know, before we see somebody or talk to somebody, if they're in a bad mood. And I think a lot of that really is sort of, the different chemosensory signals that they're giving off. That's so, you know, it makes me a little bit sad that I am so not in control of all of the things that I thought I was in control of. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, in some ways I think it's almost, you know, when we think we're in control, then we blame ourselves when it doesn't work out. And I, I think one of the great things about all this biological mess is that it shows that, A, we are all lovable, um, so lovable. We have... So many, you know, that we have this this really amazing drive um, that connects us to other people, and you know, even though we may mess up or it didn't work out, we're still ready to love again, and I think that that's great. Um, but the other side of it is, you know, when you understand how complex it all is, you know, it's not so much your fault anymore. I'm not saying that we should turn it around and be like, oh, none of it's my fault. I'm going to act the way I want to act, and uh, it's my my testosterone, everybody. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, there's there's a lot going on, and, and it's not as simple as boy meets girl, you know, falling in love, having a baby, and living happily ever after, and that's okay, too, because well, for some talk. of us, yeah, right. that's not what works. So. Right, and so let's let's talk about the making love last because we've we've talked about the, the the chemicals and what kind of gets us to the point where we're with a person. But once we have gotten into a romantic relationship with someone, uh, brain chemistry wise, how how does the trajectory of the relationship affect our brain? 
So uh, it seems like there's about a two-year window where you are happy, crazy, in love. Um, and this is both good news and bad news, right? The two-year window is good news to your friends and family who are so, so sick of you being in the honeymoon phase um, and ready for you to get back to your, your normal snarky self. Um, and, but the bad news is, what, two years? That's all I get, you know? Um, but you, you kind of, your, your brain chemicals kind of settle down, you get into your groove. Um, and in fact, you can see that in brain activation. Um, but for some reason, there are some couples, and we don't know why, that stay in that heady, crazy, romantic, in love way for good. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't quite understand why. Um, and, you know, it seems like when you talk to them, what you find is they tend to have a lot of sex. Um, they tend to enjoy spending time together. They touch a lot. Uh, but also they tend to do, like, novel things together. They try new things together. So they're they're not letting themselves get stuck in a rut in other ways as well. Um, so, unfortunately, there isn't a magic bullet to making love last. Um, two years kind of makes a lot of sense because that's basically the right amount of time to get pregnant, have a baby, and, um, you know, at least make sure that the baby doesn't die in the first couple months of life. Right. Um, That's amazing. It's so amazing how much we're, it's based on anthropology and, and, uh, and biology. And so for, for those lasting relationships, it sounds like the, the behaviors that they are exhibiting are those that would release dopamine and those, uh, th- those pleasure chemicals from, from places other than sex. Is that? I, I think that that's probably fair. And, you know, I think, you know, this is an important point because we, we've been sitting here blaming biology for all this crazy stuff, but biology never works in a vacuum, right? It's getting a lot of information from the environment about the way that you're supposed to act, the way that you're supposed to react, what you're supposed to do. Um, so when we talk about, you know, these, these long-lasting couples, you know, we really find that they're pretty compatible. They like doing the same stuff. They do stuff together, you know, the sex and touching, you know, that helps release the chemicals, but so does the, you know, trying new things together. Uh, novel activities, that releases dopamine. Um, you know, uh, spending time together and, and trying new things probably also gives you more to talk about, more to bond over. Um, there's probably lots of ways that both these biological factors and these environmental factors work together. Um, but it's also fascinating because when you look at some of the work of Margaret Mead and some other people, you know, our idea of lifetime monogamy, what if that isn't, like, what if that really is sort of a biological anomaly? I mean, we've we've been sold this whole idea of happily ever after, and of course, we've certainly, um, you know, been told for a long time, especially in America, that uh, monogamy is, is the only way to have a relationship, Right. Um, and of course, you know, things have changed, uh, you know, till death do us part was great when, uh, we only lived to be 34. Um, but if you live till 90, does it make sense to have the same partner in your teenage years, uh, when you're having babies and raising young children, when your kids are leaving the nest and going off or when you're older and, and maybe need help getting around. Sure. Maybe that for those different parts of your life, you need a very different kind of partner. Um, and yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's something that I think sort of, you know, anthropologists and, and uh, ethicists 
think a lot about. Um, but we don't know. It may be that as our lifespans are changing, and of course our biology changes a lot with that, it means our relationships are going to change too. For sure, for sure. Our our, our needs are, are changing and our wants are changing. So yeah. in that realm, let's let's talk about uh let's talk about monogamy. Let's talk about <laughs> fidelity. Um so what is it uh you've said that in, in pretty much all societies uh infidelity exists and, and there's there's really yes. not one that um that societally has been able to conquer it. So let's talk tell me a little bit about it from a from a biological perspective. So there's sort of this old idea, and actually you can go back to the King of Nye and listen to Yul Brynner sing it out, talking about his proverbial bunny uh, bumblebee going from flower to flower. So there's long been this idea that men, uh, they have those billions of sperm, they need to spread them around, you know, flick that baby batter wherever they can to help propagate the species. Mm-hmm. But women, we, we have on average about 300-odd eggs. We have to be choosy. Um, if we're going to go into the, both the biological and, and other commitments of having a child, we want a good bet. Not only do we want a baby that's going to survive, but one that's going to thrive. Um, so we need to be choosier about who our partners are and, and who we, uh, you know, have children with. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of given this idea that men cheat because of this sort of biological imperative while women do not cheat uh, because, you know, we're choosy and we, we, we need to protect our offspring at all costs. Of course, we all know that women can and do cheat. Right. Um, and uh, that, that does happen for a variety of reasons. Um, and even when we look to the animal world, you know, a lot of times people talk about monogamous species. Uh, you know, there are prairie voles, there are certain kinds of mice uh, that, that tend to partner up for life. But what we also know about these uh, monogamous species is that they are socially monogamous, not sexually monogamous. In fact, when you look at a wild um, sort of colony of a lot of these um, mammals, what you find is uh, when you, you study them, look at their uh, genetics and, and look at paternity, even though a lot of those animals may pair up and live with one animal for their entire lives, that doesn't mean that they're, again, getting a little on the side from time to time. So <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> if not even a prairie bull can keep it together, what does that mean for humans? Um, you know, there are a lot of good reasons to be sexually monogamous uh, for health. It's not hurt your partner. Uh, you know, to, uh, you know, pick your, pick your poison. There are all kinds of reasons why we sort of have this ingrained societal rule that you're supposed to cleave onto one person for, for your entire life. Right. Um, but for the most part, you know, biology, if we look at it, it it's, it's really necessarily designed that way. But that said, you know, we are, have these great big frontal lobes. We have lots of judgment, reasoning, uh, moral behavior that kind of goes against our, our natural biology. You know, we, we are civilized. We don't steal from other people for the most part. We don't, you know, run around naked or, you know, when somebody cuts us off in traffic, most of us don't, you know, run them down and hit them over the head with a hammer. Um, there are all kinds of things that, that may seem more natural, so to speak, that we don't do anymore. Right. So while I think that a lot of the biological evidence suggests that, um, you know, 
sexual monogamy is not the natural state of things. So much of our life now isn't natural, so to speak, but we always have the choice. And even if we go back to that monkey that I was talking about before, mm-hmm. you know, even he managed to um, sort of keep it together and, uh, you know, not give in to the temptation of all these women because he knew better, right. which means all of us have that power too. Exactly. Sometimes we may not want to, um, and we certainly might like the idea of a biological imperative to cheat. Um, so I think monogamy is definitely possible. It may not be natural. And, right. it, you know, and again, given all of these blueprints, given all of these ways that, that we are in biology and environment intersect, what we're going to see are a lot of differences between all of us in terms of our sex drives, in terms of our desires, in terms of what we may need from a partner across our life. Um, and, and so that's going to play into it as well. Well, and you say that the, the, the way you feel when you're in love and with a partner is very different than the way you feel after having casual sex. So does that factor into uh, sex addiction? Does sex addiction really exist? What are your What are your thoughts on that? So it's interesting because, um, you know, when they were just coming um, up with the last DSM, which is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, they really sort of were having open discussions um, about, uh, you know, addiction disorders. Uh, To date, they'd always been, or prior to that, rather, they'd always been about substances, alcoholism, and drug use. But people really wanted to include gambling, and a lot of people wanted to uh, include food and sex. Mm-hmm. Now, the tricky part about food and sex is that these are things, again, these are drives. These are things that we kind of need to live. These are things that, that the body pushes for. And so it makes them very difficult to classify as an addiction. What what counts as an addiction? What doesn't? Just because somebody needs to, you know, uh, have sex every day and, and some people only need to have it once a month, does that mean that they're an addict? It, it, it's harder to sort of figure out pathology um, with something that, that you actually need to survive. So gambling ended up becoming a part of the manual, and then there's sort of a special part in the back that talks about food and sex addiction. Um, and what it comes down to is people, doctors tend to see these things as pathological when um, basically they really start interfering with your life. Mm-hmm. Um, activity, your job, your relationships, activities of daily living, um, if, if you are masturbating to the point where, you know, your, your penis is bleeding, there's probably something that, that requires medical attention. Um, but again, it, it's hard to draw that line because there are so many individual differences. That said, you know, the, in terms of the brain science, sex and, um, you know, addiction, these areas of the brain have strong overlaps. And when we talk about addiction, you know, sort of a, it's it's some kind of, you know, wrench in the works, some kind of wrench in the system where all of a sudden, you know, you're not getting the right feedback in your brain from a stimulus. You need more and more and more of it, and you're you're compelled to want it even when you don't really want it. Your your brain is giving you signals that you need it, and you need it now. And in fact, if you don't get it, you're going to get sick. Um, so sex addiction. I, I think it, it it can kind of make sense to me. Um, I, I just I'm not a doctor, and so I, I'm not quite sure how it would define it. So if people do think that they are dealing with an addiction, I think they 
you know, a sex addiction, they should definitely talk to their medical professional. Um, but again, I, th- I think the line may be when it really interferes with activities of daily living, with your work, with your relationships. Sure. Um, when it really gets into this pathological state. And that has got to be extremely difficult, both with sex and with food, because, uh, like you said, these are two things that are necessary for survival. And so there's no there's no cold turkey. You can't stop right. eating. I mean, you can stop having sex, but most people don't. You know, it 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 interferes with the ability to have a relationship and have a partner. So that would be to have that turn into a, a pathology where you you feel like you can't stop. Um, I would think that would be difficult to manage for a lifetime. It, and what, the other thing that I think is really interesting is that there's been some new work that looks at substance abuse, so drug addiction and alcoholism, that really shows that a key component to recovery and what may be more important than the 12 steps um, in 12-step programs is the community. It really seems to be, you know, finding those social connections again are the things that really help people stay clean. And I think that that's fascinating, given that there's overlap. And, again, I'm not a medical doctor, um, so if you are having problems, I'm not saying, okay, give up your, you know, your 12-step program or your Naxalone or whatever and, uh, you know, just go hug it out. Right. Um, But I I think it's really fascinating that for so many people, having that kind of social support and those loving relationships, you know, having a lot of love in your life and and a lot of community in your life really do make a difference. Most definitely. Well, and that takes us to the, the the last topic I wanted to talk to you about, and it's also the last topic in your book the um, the the God module, the um, <laughs> the the, um, the the loftiest of all of the the love that people feel. How right. does that relate into this equation? Um, so it's interesting. Um, originally, I was not going to be write about religious devotion in this book, but I was actually traveling around and I found myself in the middle of, of somewhere, you know, when you're driving along, and this is back before Sirius or whatever in rental cars, so you're flipping through stations trying to find a radio station, and it was Sunday morning, and so there was this, like, church service on, and you know, I had just come from learning about, you know, sort of sex and monogamy and all these other things. And this person was talking about Jesus, but was talking about ecstasy and a love greater than, you know, any other love. And all of a sudden it struck me that we use the same vocabulary for religious devotion as we do for sex and love. Why is that? I mean, what what other words do we use ecstasy for except for, you know, sex? Uh, well, a chocolate cake, and, um, you know, (laughs) Jesus. And, I, I, you know, it really sort of got me thinking. Um, And then as I did more research, I found, again, a lot of these areas in, in, you know, the brain that are involved with with love, that they're involved with uh, reward behaviors, are also, you know, involved with religious devotion. And so that really sort of fascinated me. Um, And certainly what people have found is, uh, you know, as they've studied um, you know, the power of prayer, as they've studied religious devotion, what they see is, is activity in the brain in the same areas. Um, so to a certain extent, these feelings are a kind of love. And again, it's, 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 it's hard to tease out, right? Because for so many people, religion is a feeling of, of being loved. It, it, it is a feeling of community, of connecting with other people. It is, you know, has, so many overlaps. So, you know, it makes sense that some of the vocabulary would be the same. Um, 
And, of course, you see these overlapping brain areas. Um, and, it, you know, it's funny. A lot of people don't want me to talk about this because people uh, can sometimes feel offended or feel like that, you know, the, the science is taking away from um, – I, I don't. I'm trying to think of the right word, the non-offensive word, uh, but <laughs> it's, it's taking away from from, from sort of the sanctity of their sure. of their feelings. Yeah. Um, and for me, I, I actually think it's the opposite. You know, seeing that there really is sort of this biological, um, you know, uh, reaction to these things, it, it it shows me just how deep that they are. Um, so I, I think it's really fascinating. Um, that once again, we see this overlap. Then also, you know, and I don't think it's a coincidence, you know, these overlaps of, of community, of connection, um, and of, of, you know, trying to do well by other people. So I think that's pretty cool. Sure, definitely. Yeah, this is, it, it is, this this is such a fascinating topic. I'm so glad that you wrote this book. Now, you have uh, another book that you recently released. Tell Tell us about that. Sure. Um, it's called The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. Um, and it's actually about risk-taking behavior. So um, it, it actually sort of came to be from this book because this same circuit that's so important to love and sex is also, and, and we also talked about addiction, is also linked to risk-taking behaviors. Hmm. In some ways that makes sense, right? Because is there any greater risk or reward than love and sex in life, right? It's right. one of the best things. Um, but why do we do these crazy things that we do? Why do some people, you know, scale mountains without ropes just to jump off of them in wingsuits? Why are some people so comfortable with billion-dollar business deals or running into burning buildings? Is there something fundamentally different about them than the rest of us? And so I really kind of wanted to explore that um, at the intersection of not just neuroscience, but but also the real world, sort of check and balance some of the scientific studies with real-world successful risk-takers about how they do what they do. And so that was really interesting because, again, it was one of those things where uh, probably not a coincidence that there was a lot of overlap. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, sort of a lot to be learned about how, uh, you know, these, these extreme sports heroes, firefighters, um, special forces operators, professional poker players, how they assess the world and how they make decisions. Well, that sounds fascinating, too. So what is your website? Where can people go to find both uh, both the book we discussed today and your new one? So um, both books, uh, The Art of Risk and This Is Your Brain of Sex, are available wherever books are sold. Of course, you can find them on Amazon, but I have uh, a soft spot in my heart for cool little indie bookstores. <laughs> um, and you can find me online at katesukel.com, K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L.com. And, of course, I'm on Twitter, uh, where I'm usually uh, kind of chronically oversharing, at Kate Sukel, um, and that's at K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L. Please say hi. I will say hi back. Oh, well, Kate Sukel, thank you so much for being here today. This has been a really fun and really interesting topic to discuss. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And for The Authentic Woman, this is Shannon Fisher. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.